This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts, the law, the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover some of that stuff for Slate. And we are here in your ears outside our regular schedule because we want to try to figure out Friday's uh, Supreme Court decision. I'm saying decisions in the Texas abortion SB8 cases that came down on Friday morning. When I say we, I mean me and Slate's own wonderful Mark Joseph Stern, who is joining me. The ink is not yet dry on either of our pieces, and we're trying to thrash out the scope of the thing. So we're going to do that in real time in your earbuds. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks for making time. Hi, happy to be here. So let's do the basics. Tell us about SB8, Mark. (laughs) So SB8, as almost everyone now knows, is a law passed by Texas this year um, that bans abortion after six weeks of pregnancy um, and that has a rather novel enforcement structure. So it does not task most government officials with enforcing its terms. So it doesn't say, you know, the attorney general can file a suit against abortion clinics or whatever. Instead, it empowers private individuals, essentially bounty hunters, to sue any abortion provider or anyone who aids or abets an abortion provider for a minimum of $10,000 in Texas state courts because of their complicity in performing or facilitating an abortion after six weeks. Uh, The Supreme Court in early September allowed this law to take effect on the shadow docket. It then moved the cases to the rocket docket and heard uh, two challenges, one brought by abortion providers, one brought by the United States Department of Justice, both of which asked the Supreme Court to allow these suits to proceed um, by uh, essentially affirming that there is at least somebody in Texas who can be properly named as a defendant to sue thereby opening the door to federal court and eventually allowing a federal judge to issue an injunction that protects abortion providers and patients' constitutional rights under Roe versus Wade. That was superb. Uh, Well done. And maybe worth two little notes, uh, no exception for rape, no exception for incest. And um, as Justice Sonia Sotomayor points out in her opinion, this has functionally ended. Uh, abortion after six weeks in Texas. In other words, we are now in our third month of pregnant people in Texas unable, for the most part, to get uh, an abortion in Texas. And that's all because of the chilling effect of the possibility of litigation, being sued by 100 different people, people all over the country, you, they collect $10,000 bounties if they win. You do not collect a bounty if you win as a provider. Um, and that you can be sued multiple times on, out of existence. So just to be clear, 
There's no law anywhere that says abortion is banned in Texas. And the issue here was what do you do with a mechanism, an enforcement mechanism that makes it impossible for the clinics to sue? Okay, let's do quick, quick on the Justice Department uh, lawsuit. We we talked about this, I think, when it was argued. Didn't look like it stood a chance. Doesn't stand a chance. Doesn't stand a chance. Uh, gets dismissed as improvidently granted by the Supreme Court on Friday morning. Only Justice Sonia Sotomayor dissents from that decision. So it looks like an 8-1 decision to just swat down the Justice Department's lawsuit. Seems like the majority said, we don't want to deal with this. We're only going to take on the abortion provider suit. So that is where all the action is now. Okay, so then in Whole Women's Health, uh, which is the abortion provider's suit, we actually have a substantial opinion. And I want to talk for in a second about what the opinion was, but I want to note, even before we do, and we are taping this uh, Friday shortly after it comes down, nobody knows if this is an 8 to 1, a uh, 5 to 4, a 4 to 4 to 1. Uh, it is nominally, let's agree, an 8 to 1 opinion to allow the providers to sue some, but certainly not all, of the state actors they wanted to sue. So I guess I'm just like top line. Are you calling this eight to one, five to four, four to four to one, seven to two? What, what's um, going on? I think I've called it all of those things on Twitter <laughs> at some point. It really depends on how you look at it. So it is an eight to one decision to allow this lawsuit to proceed against state licensing officials in Texas who the court decides uh, actually play some role in enforcing SB8 on behalf of the state by shutting down abortion clinics that violate the six-week ban. It is a five-to-four decision in throwing out the part of this lawsuit that had targeted state court clerks as well as the Texas Attorney General and attempted to name them as defendants uh, against whom an injunction could be issued to block SB8. So you have all of the justices except Thomas agreeing that the suit can proceed against these, these licensing officials. And then you have Gorsuch joined by Barrett Kavanaugh, Alito, and Thomas holding that the lawsuit can't proceed against state court clerks and the attorney general, Ken Paxton. And let's do Thomas quickly. What does Clarence Thomas say about all this? Thomas says, I don't see what's wrong here. You know, Texas is just uh, acting uh, on its own prerogatives uh, and has decided to ensure that these claims stay locked in state court. And I don't see any uh, reason why these uh, providers should be allowed to march into court and sue anybody here. He rejects this reasoning about the licensing officials. He rejects this idea of a chill on constitutional rights. He rejects pretty much the entire suit and alone says we should have tossed this out completely. Nobody has standing to sue in the first place. This is not a valid case or controversy under Article 3 of the Constitution, so we have no power to do anything. So let's, without getting too, too deep in the weeds of ex parte young and sovereign <laughs> immunity, uh, which is, I think, where the Gorsuch opinion spends most of its time, let's just agree that Neil Gorsuch, writing for the bulk of the court, says, as you said, um, look, we're going to take 
Ken Paxton out of this. We're going to take this judge and this clerk out of it. We're going to say only that the providers can go ahead with their suit against these four licensing officials. Again, having said, let's not get too deep uh, down the rabbit hole of why some are in or and why others are not in. Can you just briefly talk about why these four officials can still be subject to suit? Yeah, so Gorsuch really zeroes in on this provision of SB8 that was largely ignored in the coverage and frankly in the litigation, but that is super important, which says that if a, uh, if a clinic is found to have violated the six week ban, then the state court hearing the case doesn't just, um, issue a, a, a $10,000 award to the bounty hunter, but actually has to shut down the clinic. So the idea here is on top of the financial penalty, the clinic gets shuttered by the state. And that process inherently involves some state officials, uh, Gorsuch calls them executive licensing officials who have the power to enforce this provision and other provisions of the Texas code that restrict abortion. And so he says, as far as these four licensing officials are concerned, they are legitimate defendants. They can be named and the case can proceed against them because they are state actors who fall into the, uh, the ex parte young exception. Let's talk a little bit about what feels like the part of the Gorsuch opinion in which he more or less says, correct me if I'm overreading, you always do, um, <laughs> A, y'all are going to fail anyway when you come back. Uh, go ahead, file your little uh, suit, get your little injunction, but I am very dubious uh, that you can succeed on the merits uh, and the ways in which it really does, you do kind of come away with the sense that while the court is saying, look, we're not choking off all avenues uh, for the abortion uh, providers to protect themselves, we're certainly A, narrowing it because we're hiving off some of these state actors, and B, we're just giving you a little a little wink and a nod that we're, we're very doubtful that even if you come back and do this properly, you're going to prevail. Well, so I guess I would say I'm sort of neutral on whether Gorsuch thinks that they would prevail under current law. So, you know, behind the scenes, the court is debating the fate of Roe versus Wade. It's probably already decided whether to uh, uphold or overturn Roe. I don't read a ton of clues in this decision or in any of the separate writings about which direction the court is going. And I don't think I read Gorsuch to say you're going to fail in this one little sliver of a challenge that we've allowed you to pursue. I think I read Gorsuch to say, well, hey, we're allowing you to pursue this sliver of a challenge. You should be very grateful. Um, but then when you read in between the lines, pursuing that uh, that challenge may not actually get the providers any relief. So what I mean here is, of course, the main thrust of SB8 is that individuals can file these lawsuits. Gorsuch says, okay, well, well, you know, in federal court, it's fine for the clinics to file a a civil rights suit against these executive licensing officials. But those executive licensing officials aren't the people empowered to bring these $10,000 suits under SB8. And nothing in Gorsuch 
Gorsuch's opinion will stop or allow a lower court to stop random strangers from filing these $10,000 suits and trying to collect their bounty. So I think I read Gorsuch as being kind of duplicitous, making it sound like he and the court are generously allowing this, this avenue for relief, but then choking off all of these other alternatives and ensuring that that one avenue may not actually give the clinics any relief at all. And so this is the sticky wicket, Mark. This is the thing everyone's trying to figure out is, in effect, what happens next and what the district court can grant the plaintiffs in the way of relief going forward. Right. And I know you didn't want to get too into the weeds here, but I think that this is going to leave the clinics um, forced to make a real risk calculation. Because what I suspect will happen is that Judge Pittman, who uh, has control over these cases in district court, Judge Pittman will issue an injunction against these uh, four executive licensing officials and then a declaratory judgment saying that the entirety of SB8 uh, is unconstitutional. And clinics are going to have to decide whether they want to rely on that declaratory judgment to reopen their doors, knowing full well that there's not actually an injunction that's preventing the entire world from filing a suit as soon as they perform their first abortion after six weeks. Right. And this is the trap. The court doesn't get to that is SB8 unconstitutional in its entirety. So now you almost have to guess. <laughs> Is right. Judge Pittman, who's saying, okay, I'm going to say it's still unconstitutional, I've been saying that all along. Uh, do you want to put your hopes in him? Or do you want to say that the court that has reserved that question, uh, not gotten to it at all, uh, may come back and say, oops, by the way, you were on the hook all the time, right? That's <laughs> where right. we're trapped. Yes, and there's another um, trap built in, which is that SB8 has this retroactivity provision right. that says that even if you uh, rely on a decision by a court that is valid and binding that permits you to either provide or abet an abortion after six weeks in Texas, you can still be sued under SB8 if that decision is later overturned. So even if... Um, Judge Pittman could issue an injunction against everyone who could theoretically file a suit. That wouldn't necessarily provide total relief to the providers because if that injunction were later lifted, people could come to court and sue over the abortions that took place while clinics had the legal right to do this thanks to the judge. So I think what we're agreeing, Mark, is that the frame here is not clinics win. And it is certainly not that the court generously allows these plaintiffs to sue. The frame is this is a narrow win that the plaintiffs have eked out. It comes with a roadmap if red states choose to follow it of how to do this better. And yes. you noted in your piece that four states are already considering copycat laws and other states will follow. So the court is essentially saying, here's how to reverse engineer what we just did so you don't have the escape hatch that the clinics have. So we've just now agreed on, we don't quite know what Judge Pittman can do in the way of relief, and we absolutely don't know how the clinics are going to respond. The other thing I want to talk about, because it seems really important to me, is the chief justice. Because the chief justice 
essentially does what he did in the shadow docket order, which is say, hey, 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 this is not just about this clever scheme in Texas to evade review. This is about thumbing your nose at the court and nullifying constitutional law. Right. What do we make of the chief justice kind of writing in a sense all alone saying he calls it nullification. He uses the word stratagem. He's not impressed with the makers of the Texas law. He's joined only by the court's liberals. What does that tell you? Yeah. And it reminds me of how Roberts used the phrase bounty during oral arguments. Um, the only conservative justice to do so is basically Roberts and Sotomayor. I think Roberts alone among the conservatives sees very clearly how dangerous this stratagem could be for a whole range of constitutional rights that he cares deeply about. I still don't think Roberts likes Roe v. Wade. I don't know if he's willing to overturn it yet. That might not matter, but he goes to great lengths to say in this opinion, and I'm really not talking about abortion here. You know, the matter of the right at stake isn't really material in this case. The question is whether states can use this convoluted structure to evade judicial review. And he would say no, because he would allow these suits that have been filed in federal court um, to name state court clerks, as well as Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton as defendants. And I think it's a very powerful dissent, but uh, not a particularly helpful one for providers because, of course, he is in dissent and because the the block that he has cast his lot with does not seem to have any influence over the hard right five conservative justices in the majority here. So, you know, he definitely went uh, out on a limb and stuck his neck out to, to take this position um, that he probably doesn't agree with uh, as a substantive matter. I'm sure he thinks Roe was wrongly decided, whether or not he's ready to overturn it. But he alone says, I will protect the authority of this court, even when it comes to vindicating rights I personally dislike. It, it, it's such a striking concurrence and dissent insofar as he's talking about Marbury v. Madison, and he's talking about, uh, you know, the court not being disrespected and disparaged, and he's talking about, you know, the fear of the Constitution becoming a mockery, and in a really deep way, he stands alone in saying that at least the other five conservatives are in no way moved. It does make me think that we're almost exactly where we were on September 1st when the shadow docket order came down and he was standing with the court's liberals, not, as you say, because he's got any affection for Roe v. Wade. And certainly argument last week in Dobbs, I think, disabused anyone of the idea that uh, Chief Justice John Roberts is on the fence about Roe v. Wade, but that he sees these other big constitutional legitimacy, you know, the future of states nullifying the court as the determinative issue. And the rest of the parade has just moved on. They don't care. Right. That's right. He's lost control. We are going to pause for just one little minute to talk about our amazing Slate Plus membership program on our regular non-emergency amicus podcasts. Only Slate Plus members have access to the bonus segment that features behind-the-scenes chats with the incomparable Mark Joseph Stern about what is really going on every couple of weeks. This emergency week, we're going to let everybody hear the behind-the-velvet-rope conversation, but if you really want to 
make sure not to miss out in the future, please join us at slate.com slash amicus plus. Just a dollar for your first month and membership will unlock access to bonus segments from a bunch of other shows like Political Gabfest and Slow Burn and also unlimited reading on slate.com. That's slate.com slash amicus plus. And thank you as ever to our Slate Plus subscribers for supporting the work we do. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So when the shadow docket order came down, Mark, everyone dissented, every one of the court's liberals, and uh, Chief Justice Roberts really made plain uh, how horrified they were at what had been allowed to happen. Today, it is Sonia Sotomayor uh, taking it upon herself to write for the all three liberal justices. What does she say? She says a great deal. She spits a lot of fiery truths um, that are similar in substance to what the chief justice says, but obviously um, a lot more powerful and uh, a lot more um, protective of the the underlying right at issue here. You know, she talks about how Texas has stripped women of control over their own bodies, denied them um, a, a fundamental right protected by the Constitution. And she really takes direct aim at the Texas legislators uh, who passed this bill and, and at Jonathan Mitchell, who is the very far right uh, attorney who, who drafted it and sort of masterminded it. And she compares them to John C. Calhoun. She, she describes him as a virulent defender of the slaveholding South who insisted that state States had the right to veto or nullify any federal law with which they disagreed. Um, and, and I think that comparison is spot on. In his opinion for the court, Gorsuch really spurns it and says basically, oh, you're being hysterical, Sonia. Why don't you just calm down and smile more? Um, but I, I think it's quite right to say this is an old trick that has been tried many times throughout American history, especially in the decades leading up to the Civil War, nullifying constitutional rights by passing sort of crafty state laws that purport to keep um, these conflicts out of out of federal court. And Sotomayor is having none of it. She accuses the courts, uh, the majority, of sort of blessing and sanctioning this underhanded and unscrupulous strategy. And she concludes by saying the court leaves all manner of constitutional rights more vulnerable than ever before to the great detriment of our constitution and our republic. So she is not mincing words. She sounds righteously quite angry at what the court has done, um, correctly so in my view. And I think if we wanted to read any tea leaves here, I don't think this dissent bodes particularly well for Roe v. Wade when the court finally hands down uh, its big, straightforward abortion decision later in the term. So, so Mark, you're teeing up my very last question, which is everybody's trying to figure out how 
to think about the bigger question of what this signals about the future of Roe and Casey and what the outcome will be in Dobbs. I think you and I have both said versions of, look, this is how the Overton window works, right? The court is going to say SB8 goes too far. Mississippi is fine. You've lived for a long time with six-week ban. How much Worse is a 15-week ban. This is kind of worse than that because the court doesn't actually say the thing we thought Brett Kavanaugh was worried about, right? We can't let SB8 be law because then California is going to enact a vigilante system to go after people with guns. That's not what the court did today. The court said only SB8 is really clever. Um, here's your tiny little wormhole to try to get it enjoined. Uh, Stay tuned to see what happens in Dobbs. So in a weird way, if this was about Overton window and shifting expectations and giving a win on one hand and a loss on the other, none of that really happened. It feels as though this was a pretty narrow, narrow, narrow win, if a win at all, for for the abortion providers. Does that signal anything, either about where the court is headed in Dobbs or what the court thinks uh, public expectation will tolerate? Yeah, so like I said before, um, I think Gorsuch works hard to sound neutral about abortion. You know, he, he doesn't include any language saying this is a constitutional right and we don't take lightly the abrogation of a right by legislature. And he also doesn't say, oh, this purported right that the court has recognized at times. He, he neither praises nor <laughs> dismisses the right to abortion. Um, and, and I think um, that makes it difficult for me to glean any anything from this majority opinion. Um, I will say that his blasé attitude toward the law may be the biggest tell. Um, you know, you have the chief and the liberals lighting their hair on fire, running around saying this is a huge problem and this is really scary. But the majority's attitude is sort of nonchalant. You know, Gorsuch even compares this law, SB8, to all manner of other kind of garden variety laws and regulations that um, keep challenges in state court for a while before they can leap over to federal court. And, and he sort of implies that this is not really that different. You know, there's a few extra tricks, um, but it, it, it's not substantively that different from, from these traditional statutes. And and that, to me, is striking and kind of horrifying because he doesn't seem to to believe, nor do his very, very conservative colleagues, that Texas is up to something evil and unscrupulous here. And if they can't see that what Texas is doing here is dangerous and scary, I am very, very skeptical that they are going to expend an iota of, of political capital or personal courage upholding Roe or any constitutional right to abortion access. Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts and the law and the Supreme Court for us at Slate. Mark, this was, we kind of yanked you off your bar stool. You were supposed to have a quiet uh, Friday afternoon. This was incredibly kind of you to come in and give us your great big brain. Um, I guess we'll just say both on this narrow question of what happens next in these suits by these providers, but in the big meta question of the future of Roe, we just stay tuned? I think so. This isn't a reprieve. It isn't a pause. It's just a big fat to be continued. And we will probably continue to get 
crazy Friday night decisions from district courts in the Fifth Circuit in Texas trying to suss out what the hell the Supreme Court just did. Thank you, Mark. And that is a wrap for this special extra off-week episode of Amicus. Thank you, as always, for listening in. Thank you so much for your letters and your questions, especially as we try to figure out the world in real time before your very ears. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com. You can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is our editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We will be back with another regular episode of Amicus next week. Until then, hang on in there.